Danny Boy has become an anthem for Irish America, no question of it. At this point, seemingly countless recordings of Danny Boy that feed into that image of Irish America that um, you can either find tiresome and restricted, if that's all there is, or it can be a, 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 it can be a gateway to something more complex. Capture that perfectly, if you like, a romanticised nostalgia in certain ways. It is ideal for the later generations in some ways. The first generations are too close to the ground to sort of, in a way, identify totally with the, 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 the sentimental appeal of Danny Boy. The heir to Danny Boy is quite old. It was making the rounds in the United States and was known. So when it comes back via London in the form of Danny Boy, you know, it taps into a memory bank that's already there. If Ernestine Schumann Heinck is singing this, I mean, she opened by singing Beethoven. So now Danny Boy is equal to Beethoven. So now it was fair game for anyone. In 1913, the ballad Danny Boy was released, and in the century that followed, it somehow became an anthem for an immigrant community in the New World. The song is well enough liked in Ireland, but it was in America that it became a symbol, a marker of Irish-American identity, and attracted countless recording artists to its poignant story of love, loss, and faithfulness. But how did this happen? How did one song come to be so revered and so identified with the Irish in America? And what Irish-American identity is Danny Boy an expression of? I'm Mary Brophy, and I've come to New York to attempt to sift through these verses of melody and meaning, of heritage and identity, and to tell the story of the song in the heartland of Irish-America. I'm on Braddock Street in Queens, where the NYPD Emerald Society pipes call through the sounds of this suburban night. Oh, no, he was deported. He was murdered. <laughs> <laughs> so, how you doing? I'm Dennis Lenny. So, as people stagger in, you know, guys are, you know, coming off from work and so on and so forth. And uh, we'll, approximately at 8.30 or so, we all get together up here. And, uh, you know, we'll go over the tunes. So, we'll go over our tunes that we're giving out, the tunes that we play most of the time. And we'll do that for about an hour. And then uh, we'll go on the floor with the bagpipes. And as you can see, the drummers sort of make themselves at home, you know? The Emerald Society formed in 1953 as a fraternity of the large contingent of New York Irish police, and the pipe band followed in the 60s. Captain Danny Collins is the assistant bandmaster. We go from 79 down to uh, Noonan. Where's Noonan? And do you have to be Irish to be in the uh, the pipe band? Yes, you have to be a member of the Emerald Society. So and you have, you have to, to be Irish to be a member of the men of Right, you have to be at least uh, one of your grandparents has to be uh, one-eighth. You have to be at least one-eighth Irish. So. Uh, what we're going to do is, um, hey, uh, all the pipe is just going to strike up, whole groans. We're going to come in on the low A for the slow version. Da -dee -da -dee -dum. And when we finish that, 
For the people in the band, their Irish heritage is very important to them. You know? Lieutenant Jack McGovern. Uh, whether some of the people in the band are from the other side, uh, not as many as in the past, but uh, uh, it's just part of being who you are, that you're Irish-American, you know, and I mean, we've been back and forth to Ireland several times, played there, and that was some of the biggest uh, highlights of the last 50. It was particularly our first first time when we played in Crow Park for the All Ireland Hurling. You know, half of the parents in the neighborhood came from from Ireland, and so joining the society was not any big to do. And then, if you liked the music, you bagpipes and sort of gravitated towards it. And so it was a love of music, Irish. You know, I mean, it was just you didn't think about being Irish American. You know, it's just, you just were. Hey, Joe. At noon, see if he needs his drum kit. We played at the funeral for the uh, uh, the death of the line of the police force in the line of duty. Oh, I didn't hear about that. Yeah, that was on uh, uh, Monday. There was 70, 72 of us from the band at the funeral. It was in Rockaway. Actually, they used to refer to Rockaway as the Irish Riviera. I don't know if you've uh, ever heard that term before. Yes. One. Time. It's on the beat. One, two, three, four. <laughs> F, G, A, okay, on the beat. Eddie. Low, low A, go. You got a minute? Can you explain to Mary why you can't play Danny Boy in the bagpipes, can you? Yes. Tell her why most people can't play Danny Boy in the bagpipes. They have to have their bagpipe in, you know, in tune with it. You hit high A, you, you got to be really on. It can't be flat or something because it will, it will throw the whole thing off. Well, I, got, I can play it on here for you. It's a hard tune to play, but the pipes are limited in their range, right? So it's it's really you're improvising. Some of the good pipers can get it up there, uh, you know. It, it doesn't. You have to be really good, and it kind of loses something. It's not a tune meant for pipes, really. You'll find individual guys playing it. You know? No, it can be played. I've been playing it a long time. Play it as an individual. We play it, you know, I play it at funerals, and a lot of people do because people ask for it. It's a dirge, really, in a way, you know. The 23rd Street, I've come to West 28th Street, or the Flower District, I make my way past a delivery truck as a couple of stern New Yorkers unload delicate exotics into a nearby shop, and the spring air is filled with the scent of cherry blossom and hyacinth. I'm here to see where in this American metropolis Danny Boy was born. The sheet music to Danny Boy was published by Boozy and Company of London and New York. A British publisher of ballads, Boozy had set up their first New York office in 1892, a few streets from here. If you were in music publishing, this was the time and the place to be. New York City was fast becoming the epicenter of a new popular music world. The marketing phenomenon that was to become known as Tin Pan Alley was up and running less than a decade, and Andrew Carnegie's Hall, way up on 57th Street, had opened just a year earlier in 1891. At the office of what is now Boozy and Hawks, I meet Katie Salmon. The first really cool thing was the publication record of Danny Boy. Um, we found the original in the archives. 
This is just the log of everything that Boozy has published um, just in order. That's fantastic. So we can see here it's December 20th and they have three entries for that. So it was right at the end of, of 1913, December 20th. Mm-hmm. And Danny Boy is there. Ballads were just a really popular form of entertainment. They were kind of salon entertainment, the songs that ladies would learn to play on the piano and then they would entertain their friends and their family and that sort of thing. And so Boozy really cashed in on the ballads because they were easy to print and they had composers who could just kind of churn them out really quickly. They were kind of for the masses. Pretty much anyone could learn them and play them. I was looking through this earlier. I didn't see anything else particularly notable, anything that's kind of stood the test of time as much as Danny Boy has. Further along on West 28th Street, between 5th and 6th Avenue, the echoes of 100 pianos linger. This was home to Tin Pan Alley, a confluence of culture and commodity where songsmiths, the sons and daughters of immigrants, wrote and sold the soundtracks to the sweeping changes taking place in America in the early 1900s. Tin Pan Alley was more associated with sheet music than with actual recordings or even performances. Musicologist Mick Maloney. It was given that name by a journalist, a man called Munro Rosenfeld. And he noted that the area around 28th and Broadway uh, it was filled with music publishers at that time and that they, the music industry in America seems to have consolidated in that place. And he said if you went up there at any given hour during the day, he said that the din would be deafening and you'd hear so many pianos in different keys playing different songs. It was like tin pans banging together. And the, the heyday of sheet music, you have to take it back to to the 1850s to a man called Stephen Foster. When he wrote a, a song that we're all familiar with called Oh Susanna, uh, the popular music industry was changed forever. Before Oh Susanna, the greatest number of copies that any piece of music had sold in any kind of representational form was 5,000. Oh Susanna sold 100,000 copies. And for the first time, people were singing the very same version of the same song in San Francisco, in New Orleans, in New York, in Chicago, in Boston. And that's when the popular music industry was born. By 1892, they'd all consolidated in New York. And that's where all the energy went, that's where all the money went, was sheet music, and that was why Tin Panali ruled uh, the, the world of popular music for several decades. But there was a very strong Irish and Irish-American influence there. Why, how did that come about and, and why was it there? Well, the Irish, we, we were drawn to the performing arts from the very get-go. Uh, when you looked at the map of American popular music throughout the 19th century, a lot of Irish people there. One of the reasons you'd have to say is that popular entertainment has always been somewhat déclassé, hasn't it? On the margins, on the fringes. So when an, a new group comes in, uh, there are two fields that enable quick upward mobility, entertainment and sports. Well, Irish America has a, a, a very long history and um, a, a very interesting history. Professor Joe Lee. They begin in the 18th century for practical purposes, and that's mostly Scots-Irish migration. But it's really the famine immigration then that, uh, in a sense, swamps everything that went before in the Northeast. Because so many of the Irish coming had so little capital with them, they tended to stay in the East Coast cities and in New York above all. And it's, it's fascinating to see how they actually do dig in very quickly into New York City. Uh, 
these are coming off, as we know, famine Ireland. Uh, they're coming off. They're, not, they're, not, they're coming off small farms. Uh, they're not the poorest of the poor in Ireland. The poorest of the poor are the labourers, and they die. You know, so these, but these have to get out, or they will die too in many cases. And Irish New York, their waves keep coming. Obviously, uh, they face colossal prejudice from an element of Protestant America, which now also sees these people coming in who are poor, who are dirty, who are loud. They've been six weeks on a, on a sailing ship. They, they seem to threaten the actual social fabric of New York City. Certainly these hordes, these hordes descend on you. And remember in 1855, at the census of 1855, a quarter of the population of Manhattan was Irish-born. Just think of that. But when we arrived first, one of the few occupations we were not discriminated against in was in music. And we came with great musical traditions, um, like African-Americans uh, and Jewish uh, refugees later on. But we were a very strong performing arts culture. And, and we excelled in variety theatre, minstrelsy, where we ended up mimicking and copying and exploiting. And, but we were successful as performers all through the 19th century. song I mean what were the kind of themes that were coming through before Danny Boy well there's one uh, powerful one that is right down through the 19th century so you might say it's the prehistory of Danny Boy um, which is um, a lament for having to leave Ireland Marion Casey professor of Irish studies at NYU nostalgia is a tough word to use but sort of um, a sentimental longing or um, a remembrance a fond remembrance of what had been left behind I actually found an ode to the potato written in New York in the 1870s which when you think about it that's only 30 years or less after the famine and who would write but it's a beautiful piece about how um, how what life was like when those hills were verdant and full and and supplying and meeting all their needs in the 19th and early 20th century nostalgia was the actual clinical name ascribed to the devastation felt by those leaving home but over time as the wound of departure grew less raw for the irish in their new home grief was replaced with sentimentality you have um a maturing of Irish America in the late 19th century as far as occupation and uh, income. So you have the emergence of a middle class with discretionary income. That's one thing, so that you're, you're building a market. And America very early on, from about the 1840s, began to commercialize the Irish heavily. I've pictured in my fondest dream the success of the tin panali songwriter was delivering images uh, and words uh, and uh, and stories 
uh, to a public that wanted to, to, to consume those stories. This is the commodification of culture. And these people, not stupid people, smart people who had, you know, built the communities that we now enjoy today uh, in Irish America, they grabbed onto these images because it was good stuff. Ireland must be heaven for my mother came from there. And the, and the, the genius of the Tin Pan Alley songwriter was to create these beautiful, positive, nostalgic images where the homelands would be romanticised. And Danny Boy gets caught up in this late in the day, but very spectacularly. Danny Boy was not a Tin Pan Alley construct. It was a ballad written thousands of miles away in Somerset by the English barrister and prolific lyricist Frederick E. Weatherly, two occupations which in his autobiography he suggested had nothing in common except that both require a knowledge of life. In his long career, perhaps not so much writing to a formula, Weatherly successfully followed musical tastes and themes. Many ballads written for an older, wealthy middle class were genteel love songs or concerned with moral character and improving tales of lowly individuals with pure hearts. But here too, change was on the air. 1910, the year that Weatherly first penned the lyrics to Danny Boy, saw the beginning of four years of industrial unrest in Britain with widespread strikes. Society was transforming and songwriters needed new characters. In the same year, in conversation with Harold Simpson, Weatherly stated, no more songs of beggar children going to heaven, no more golden gates. And now the poor have become so haughty that there are no longer sympathetic subjects for songs. And so lately I have turned in another direction and I have written several rustic songs. Danny Boy was to be his most successful endeavour on this path. The words, transplanted across the ocean, found fertile ground in New York. The Tin Penale audience would have reacted immediately favourably to Danny Boy. It had the theme of nostalgia, the theme of leaving, and in this case of, 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 of not coming back. And that represented the Irish-American experience. Only 5% of the five and a half million people that left Ireland to go to America between 1848 and say 1913. Maybe 5% at best would have gone back to Ireland. The theme of not returning, the Irish as an exile, the Irish people as exile, it fit perfectly into that, in that set of motifs involved in the song. Well, for a song like Danny Boy, you have, you have to think of them in terms of how they were disseminated. These are written and they appear in print very fast. And unlike the 19th century um, books, the market is different. The sheet music is cheaper. There are more pianos available, mass produced. Just six months after Danny Boy was released, War split Europe apart. The pipes called millions of soldiers to go to their death on her battlefields. In England, Weatherly's Danny Boy and his 1916 Roses of Picardy were taken up by Elsie Griffin, who, when the war came, joined the YMCA concert party in France to boost troop morale on the front line. But in 1916 Irish America, another battle was on the air. Irish New York had a significant influence on popular American culture. And there was a general sympathy for the Irish struggle for freedom, independence, whatever the phraseology used at any given time was. There is substantial support 
for home rule, for, you know, for, the, for Redmond and company, and then, of course, that swings over after 1916 to support for Sinn Féin and for the struggle for independence. Mm. And was that, was that popular support here that in New York? Here. That was massive here. There was massive support in Irish America and, above all, in Irish New York for that struggle. This was an interesting time for New York. Talk of war and risings captivated the population. In the cultural sphere, Carnegie was the town's hall, where causes were fought for, grievances aired and hopes expressed. In April 1917, America entered the war and the music played. We were out of the building for two years while they gutted and... Um, I'm with Gino Francesconi, director of the archives at Carnegie Hall, on the search for some gems. It was getting very cramped as we've been growing. So this is our space over here. We're now going down two flights from um, the archives office. <clears throat> So this is where all the programs are stored. Right. We have all our programs here on these movable shelves, and I'll show you back here. For example, this is how we found them in the old days. They were sometimes bound. This says September 28th, 1950 to January 14, 1951. So we have months of them. Gino has found evidence of the earliest known performances of Danny Boy here on Carnegie's iconic stage. I'll show you the two page. I pulled the programs here and I wanted to just... So this is the pro program and it's entitled The Ballad Concert of Amy Castles, which is really nice. And The Irish-Australian Soprano. Isn't that wonderful? Back then they used to identify you that way sometimes. Or they would say, first time in America, you know. And as you can see, it starts off fairly um, safe, I guess you can say. And then she just does all these different tunes. And Danny Boy is all the way down here towards the end. You know, they would build up to a big finish. And I see she has uh, Thomas Moore just before it. Yeah. So this is the first performed Danny Boy that you know of here in Carnegie Hall right. is Amy Castles. Now that we've said that, in a week we're going to find another one. It, it, it always happens, you know. So, so every, everybody attending the concert would have, would have seen right. one of these. Yes. And, and so at the time, there were 2,800 seats in the hall. So this is one of 2,800 programs that has survived. And then I'll, I'll pull this one. And this is the program of November 3rd, 1917. Mezzo-soprano Ernestine Schumann-Heinck was originally from Lieben, then part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Just the year before, Schumann-Heinck had sung on this same stage at a benefit concert for German and Austro-Hungarian prisoners of war. But now that America had joined the Allies, Ernestine devoted her season to singing in American army camps. Such public professions of loyalty to her new country enamored her even more to American audiences. And they really loved, I mean, you think we're bad at marketing today, or I mean, always hyping things. They were just as bad back then. Only recital in New York this season. And she was one of the great singers of the day. You didn't really need, sometimes they would just put their last name, which I liked, you know, they would just put Schumann Heinck or Patti. 
This is thought to be the first ever recording of Danny Boy. everything. On American soil, Danny Boy had advanced from the old world of sheet music to the future of the new, where talking machines were bringing music to even greater numbers. Schumann Heinck obviously liked the song. She recorded it first in 1915 at Victor's Studios in Camden, New Jersey. But it's believed this master was either destroyed or replaced in the catalogue, because in late September 1917, she recorded it once again, and less than six weeks later, was standing on New York's premier stage promoting her release. There was always a little bit of crossover, you know? There wasn't actually popular concerts, per se, you know? I think John McCormick was really one of the first who would incorporate classical and popular tunes, and then it just evolved that way, you know? And here you see Handel, Bach, Beethoven, she's really dishing it out. Schubert, Brahms. You know, Bizet, Puccini, and then Old Irish. <laughs> it gets lighter as you go along until you get some Puccini Vise d'Arte from, from Tosca, and then you have Old Irish, and then I guess New Irish. Yeah, they distinguish. They, the Old Irish is here, and she has The Last Rose of Summer, The Minstrel Boy, and then we come down to an, another section and Aaron, an Irish lament. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Danny Boy is. is uh, it's the second from the last song. Yes. It, it, yeah, it's her second last song that she, she sang. And of course the war was going on, so. I'll bet there wasn't a dry eye in the house. It can be an extraordinarily emotional tune. to Danny Boy is quite old and it goes back to the 18th century and what's interesting is how quickly it was making the rounds in the United States and was known. Um, I believe the first editions of Thomas Moore are at the very opening of the 19th century and they are pirated and there's a New York version as early as 1807 that's here in New York of Moore's melodies now. Um, this particular one is from 1815, and you can see that among the harmonized airs that are included in the printed collection, these would have been for um, middle and upper class piano players, um, you have The Young Man's Dream, which is the same. That's the derriere. 
The heir to Danny Boy has always been a fundamental element of its appeal and a key to its early ethnic association. The story goes that in 1912, Weatherly's sister-in-law, Margaret, heard an old air played by Irish workers in California and so captivated by its beautiful melody, wrote the music down and sent it to her composing relative. But what was the origin of this old Irish air? Time has assigned it the title of Londonderry Air as it was collected in the county by a Miss Jane Ross of Limavady and supplied to George Petrie, who subsequently included it as an untitled air in his 1855 Ancient Music of Ireland. Thomas Moore had died three years earlier. In his hugely popular Irish melodies, he used Edward Bunting's 1796 collection as the source music for many of his songs, including the tune Ashley on Ogar or The Young Man's Dream. Well, the great musicologist Hugh Shields from Belfast, he was the, the first person I know of uh, to, to draw attention to the similarity in the melodic contours of, um, of the tune in the Petrie collection that became known as Danny Boy and, and uh, the tune that Bunting used for uh, Ashling and Ogar. Uh, and he showed, he put, the, he put them sa- same in the same, we call it melodic contour studies, you put the, the thing in the same key and in the same rhythm. And was, it's clear, Nicholas Carlin, who's head of the traditional music archive and myself now, we looked at the two together and it was absolutely clear they were the same melody. But yet I even talked two days ago to Lilith O'Leary the great Shano singer from Donegal, and he says, I sing uh, Ashling on, on, on uh, Ogar, and he hadn't made a connection with Danny Boy even in his own head. It's got a lot to do, there's so many, there's only so many possibilities involved in melodic contours, and and uh, a, a slight shift in emphasis will will take away the connection. And is, is that to do with the, the last... Um, the last piece of Danny Boy that it, it changed over time. I think that the Petrie collection was was the one where Petrie actually did an edit, and and that that last piece of it, it the genius of, of 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 the melody appears to be in in an intervention by the collector by George Petrie. We'll never know for sure. Percy Granger was one of the most popular and talented composers of his era. And when he took uh, the air from County Derry and made it into a respectable piece of the classical repertoire, his brilliant young composer, he elevated the tune to a position where, uh, uh, to a height where it still sits, by the way, in the classical repertoire. Um, and so it's, it's, it's succeeding on multiple grounds. If you listen to his 1909 arrangement, uh, and for strings. It just, it brings out all the nuances of the melody. It, it shifts rhythms. Uh, it's absolutely gorgeous. And, and you couldn't ignore it as a work of art, strictly on its own uh, terms.
Fred Weatherly wondered, he was he was really intrigued as why Moore didn't make more of this extraordinary melody. When he got it, he says, Moore knew this, and he knew that, that he had worked with the Bunty Collection. He said, how did he miss it? Moore's melodies go through 35-plus editions in the 19th century. All these airs are adapted in many, many ways with new words so that the melody, when it comes back via London in the form of Danny Boy, it's already, you know, it taps into a memory bank that's already there. And this time you had maybe, I don't know, two dozen industrialists that combined had more money than most countries in Europe. Mm. You know, when you mm. think of the Rockefellers, Mellons, all, all one after the other. Extraordinary wealth, and yet, as a culture, we were insecure. And it had to come from over there, or it had to sound like it came from over there. We weren't buying art so much by the artist, we were buying art by the ton. And one of my favorite examples of this is, if it didn't come from over there, it had to sound like it came from over there. Um, the head of the music of the uh, piano division at Juilliard for many years was Olga Samarov. You know, you can see the plains of Russia with this name, Olga Samarov, the way it rolls off the tongue. Her real name was Lucy Lickenhooper, and she was from Galveston, Texas. And her and her manager basically said, with a name like that, y'all's not leaving the state line. You know, and that's how it was. You know until we became more secure so that now if you sounded like you came from over there, suddenly they changed your name at, the, at Ellis Island and you now had to sound like you came from here. So someone with the name Yasur Danielovich would have to change his name to Kirk Douglas. You know what I mean? Boom, America. And then it became mainstream. If Ernestine Schumann Heink is singing this, I mean, she opened by singing Beethoven. So now Danny Boy is equal to Beethoven. Do you know what I mean? And she had put her stamp on it. So now it was fair game for anyone. Do you know what I mean? It legitimized it. And so by the time Harry Belafonte sang it here in 1959, it's just, it's just part of the structure. It's like, it's like singing any other anthem, really, you know? The place is Ireland. As Irish legend had it, when the last rose of summer fell, and all the young men of Ireland were to gather to strike a blow for Ireland's freedom and Ireland's liberty. There were songs for those that stayed at home, and songs for those that went away. And all of Ireland was sad. Harry Belafonte's introduction here in 1959, with its emotive language and patriotic images, was speaking to what was by now a well-established interpretation of Weatherly's lyrics. Danny Boy was not just a nostalgic tale. It was a call to all Irish patriots to battle, to fight for Ireland's freedom from their British oppressor. At a distance, this song was sung loudly in America. Although it was an interpretation that had more to do with timing than any intention on behalf of the author. In his 1926 autobiography, Piano and Gown, Weatherly emphatically stated that Danny Boy was sung all over the world by Sinn Féin and Ulstermen alike, 
by English as well as Irish, in America as well as in the homeland. So in that distance, did the song's call to battle, its declaration of loyalty then, resonate with Irish America's call to service? I think what made them good patriots was, first of all, um, they were, they were, there was a sense, I think, of gratitude to America for taking them in. Uh, they bring two things with them. They bring the English language, so they're able to negotiate in terms of the public spaces in America. They have the language. Secondly, they bring a terrible, terrible, utterly logical sense of insecurity. It's insecurity that brought them over here. Now, what jobs bring security? Public jobs bring security. The police bring security. City hall brings security. Firemen bring security. And teaching brings security. They colonize, in a sense. They colonize public employment of that sort. Yeah, it was, it was a job. It, it was a job, and uh, you, just, you just followed the guys in the neighborhood and uh, the fathers in the neighborhood and you became a cop. You don't think of tradition when you live in it. You know, tradition is something in, in the rearview mirror. You know what? The police department was also part of the times. They talk about the city being a melting pot. It was never a melting pot. There was an Italian neighborhood, there was a Greek neighborhood, there was an Irish neighborhood. So, uh, and there was the black neighborhood. So then when you went into certain police, certain jobs, like the, the Jewish people went, a lot of them became teachers. So each different, the Italians predominated in the, in the sanitation department. So each did different, department was almost kind of like the city it was a sort of microcosm in a lot of ways what the city was there was no blend and there was no this melting pot did not exist no matter what I think we're much more tolerant of uh, maybe um, I guess part of the trouble, some of it, you know, the, the idea about the troubles in Ireland, I think we're much more tolerant of that. You don't hear any of that as much as you used to hear. Or at times, I think you heard, like, the remnants of it more here than you did over there, you know? They were still fighting it over here, you know, for mm -hmm. years, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, where I, you don't hear that anymore. I think so, so things about Ireland become almost more polarised in Irish America? It was. I don't think, I don't see that, I see it's become more tolerant. I don't see that as much as it used to be, mm -hmm. you know? Most of our tunes back in the 50s and 60s were the rebel tunes, you know, and we rarely play rebel tunes anymore. We just, we just play music, you know? And I think the music of the past is not as polar, uh, political as it used to be either. It's more music. My grandmother came here in 1898. Okay, took, you know, she came, she came in steerage in 1898. So, uh, and my grandmother like, kind of raised me, you know? So it was a different sense of the Irish than the Irish that came in the 50s and the music of the 50s. So Danny Boy was kind of like my grandmother's music to me, I guess, thinking as you're talking about it. And with John McCormick and hearing those records, you know, it was, and then Bing Crosby, you know, like Barry Fitzgerald and The Quiet Man and that type of, you know, identification. But come ye back when I think that the Bing Crosby recording, America's most famous and wide, widely selling 
recording artist really of all time when he records it uh, after the war and he's now very comfortable with his Irish, the Irish part of his ancestry uh, in in the first 10 years of, of Crosby's national radio show, he steers completely away from Irish-American stuff. He doesn't want to be typecast. He's more known as a jazz singer and a crooner. He's America's singer. He's not going to be associated with any particular ethnic group. But after Going My Way and uh, uh, after um, Top of the Morning and various other film successes where he plays priests and genial characters, and he's Mr. He's, every, every, he's everybody's Mr. America. Uh, and now he's very comfortable being Irish, the Irish up there. A very benign presence in America. And especially after the Second World War, we've distinguished ourselves in the Civil War and two world wars. We're, we're, we're the, right at the centre of, of what it means to be American. Crosby is very comfortable now. He's been singing Danny Boy now for a while, but he hasn't recorded it. It's the only non-Christmas song on this Christmas album that sold gazillions in, in, in 1945. And that's when it really hits the headlines as, as, as an Irish-American expression. No question. It's all uphill from there. Oh, Danny It was not so much born as bred from a gene pool of cultural influences and events. Once again, Danny Boy was carried on the wave of new media, from Crosby's radio broadcasts through to the advent of television, where performers like Jackie Wilson made it their own. From Elvis Presley, jazz artists, crooners, blues to bluegrass, they all recorded their own renditions. and on screen, these decades also saw a shift in how Irish in America was represented. The accents in Danny Boy were now replaced by a thick brogue. The pipes, the pipes are calling from Glen to Until maybe Bing Crosby in um, the 1940s, they are just recycling older material in the new medium. And that helps uh, uh, make people uh, familiar with it. There's also uh, radios do specific St. Patrick's Day programming in which these are trotted out and therefore the association of Irish with the tune is adheres faster. And it becomes reinforced every every decade. Or every, every decade, yeah. And so therefore then if you have someone who's the great-grandchild of Irish immigrants who is doesn't know um, you know, I hate this this argument about what's genuine or it isn't really Irish. Mm. But if you're a fourth-generation Irish-American and for four generations your family have been singing Danny Boy, that is authentic to you. This is genuine. And it's wrong to devalue that. If it is transmitting a sense of identity, then, it's, then it is authentic. What Irish-American identity is Danny Boy an expression of? 
for Irish American identity, our, Danny Boy can be a very restricted uh, expression of it. It can be the, the the plastic paddy, as we call them over there, the St. Patrick's Day Irishman. And maybe the only thing they know is two verses or one verse or half a verse or just the melody of Danny Boy. And at that end, it's just a distant echo. Or it could be for, say, an Irish tenor like Patrick Sheehan, the, the stop the show part of a concert that that helps him make his living. At this point, seemingly countless recordings of Danny Boy that feed into that image of Irish America that um, you can either find tiresome and restricted if that's all there is or it can be a, 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 it can be a gateway to something more complex you got to remember too when you're, when you're this, this far removed you only see the good things it's the land of the saints and scholars and you know John Wayne and the quiet man and to a lot of them they still you know I mean it's, it's back to the thing you don't, re, you don't appreciate something when you're surrounded by it but when you're removed a little bit from it, it's a different story. And when you remove the generation from it, it's a completely different story. You know, they protect that, you know, and I decided to screw it anyway. In 2008, just before St. Patrick's Day, Sean Clancy, owner of Foley's Irish Bar in Midtown Manhattan, decided to ban the singing of Danny Boy in his pub for the month of March. Why did you ban it? Um, because it's a beautiful song when it's sung properly, but most people can't sing it properly. Most people don't know the words, they don't know the second verse. You know, they know the first line, you know, and um, and that, that was my biggest reason for it. You know, I mean, I could have picked... They were like, oh, well, you, you know... And it's a very sad song, too, you know. I mean, we're talking about March. March is a celebration of everything that's Irish. And why do we have to sing a song that's talking about... You know, I mean, like, just listen to the words of Danny Boy. And it's, it's like, um, you know, he's going off to war and his mother's like, you know what, I'll be dead when you come back, but will you come and sit by my grave? I'm like, really? I'm like, it's like, make me all warm and fuzzy inside. You know, I mean, the, the Irish are known for the songwriting and their singing and, you know, there's a lot of upbeat, happy, you know, you know, that I said, you know, we can find something better to sing about. And we did get those calls. I got calls and people told me that they were going to bro- they were going to uh, boycott me and that they were going to march outside Foley's on St. Patrick's Day. And, you know, so that was a little scary. I'm in Florida and I'm driving along listening to the Frank Sinatra channel. And Nancy Sinatra says, you know, she said, there's a guy in New York and... She said, my father wouldn't be too happy with him because he doesn't like Danny Boy. She said, well, it was my father's favourite Irish song, so I'm going to play it. So It, it kind of hit a chord, and uh, again, there was no malice intended with the Irish-Americans. I mean, uh, being Irish and born in Ireland, I mean, we, we know what it is to be Irish, but it's until you leave Ireland, you don't realise or appreciate it. Um, but when you meet these people who have never been to Ireland, whose grandparents or great-grandparents came from Ireland, um, they're more Irish than we are, you know? So, and when you realize that that, one of the, the links that they have to their grandparents or great-grandparents is the song Danny Boy, then you become, you kind of back off a little bit because like you said, it's like their national anthem. So, you know, you, they don't like, God forbid you say anything bad about it. Granted, most of them can't sing it and most of them don't know the history of it or where it came from. Um, but it's 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 an important part of their heritage and their culture. Don't tread on their 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 Danny boy in March. That whole connection doesn't tend to be a factor until you settle down and have kids. Here. And you're here. And then your kids go to school here. And then you suddenly tend to find that you're you know, I mean 
a lot of them are very conscious that the, the kids have a connection to Ireland. So whether that be the, the annual visit to Ireland or Granny Grandad coming back from Ireland, but you suddenly find that you know they're enrolling their kids in all the things that we were we hated when we were kids: Irish dancing, you know, Gaelic football. And I'm probably the only guy living in suburban New Jersey who has kids on his front lawn with Wexford hurls every weekend. So <laughs> your roots are stronger, obviously, in supplanted. Irish immigrants to America today bear no resemblance to their counterparts a hundred years ago. But if exile is always our story, will Danny Boy always be part of its soundtrack? Will this song remain an anthem for Irish America? Outside a bar on 52nd, I meet members of the Irish Network NYC, a networking group for Irish and Irish-American young professionals in the city. Lawyer John Murphy emigrated here 20 years ago. I, I would say in terms of my identity, am I going back? Is my life here? Is my family here? In that sense, I'm Irish in America and I'm, I'm, I'm American. But in, in another way, it actually reinvigorates the fact that you are a distinctive heritage and you want your kids to have it. So, and that's where, you know, you lead into Danny Boy uh, and, and all of the attributes and characteristics of, of our culture in America. It, it establishes that you're here, you've got real roots. These kids are born and raised, they're citizens automatically here, but they're also Irish and you're Irish and you want to make sure that the, that heritage is, is instilled in them. So you do, you wrap yourself a little bit more in it, yeah. Yeah, I think the reason those, that song is not sang as much, genuinely, is because it's, it starts, it's a very sad song. Jason O'Brien. So are the fields of Athen Rye and so is the green fields of France, but they're much happier songs when you're singing them. It just goes to a better place. Danny Boy doesn't do that for me, and I've never heard it really been sang that much, ever. And I've three yeah, look, restaurants. I would actually take a little bit of a contrary view, going back to what that song has meant down the decades. And I'm not claiming, you know, we're we're sort of of a different generation, obviously, relatively more recent. What it means to me directly here in, in the present, it's it's a nostalgic, beautiful song when it's sung by somebody who can sing. It's a tough song. Um, and it's very poignant, but very much for the historical throwbackness. Like I don't, I do not think of that song as an expat in the same way as, for example, of the fields of Athenry that kind of grabs you because we associate it with some, you know, perhaps the, the, the great triumphs of the soccer team back in the early 90s and so on and so forth. But, but it is. I respect it for what it has meant to so many that have come in other waves. Mm. And I know that a lot of that generation, it's a very poignant song, and Irish-Americans today. I received probably somewhere in the region of 3,000 emails. A lot of them were like thanking me for banning it because they, it was a sad song and all they remembered was it had been sung at their dad's funeral or their grandfather's funeral. They didn't have any happy memories of the song. This is real life for these people and you know their, 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 last, their memories of that song are somebody dying and close to them. Any, any cop job in line of duty, we become the traditional band that marches. The uh, it originally started. So one of the guys in our band got killed in 19, 1971, uh, Thanksgiving Eve, 1971. Patty O'Connor got killed on the BQE. So we played at his funeral out in Long Island. That was the first time it was ever done. And then the next time a cop got killed in the line of duty, they asked for us. 
And it's become a tradition now. You know, mm. We've played it hundreds, unfortunately, it's hundreds of funerals we've done now at this stage, including the 23 from the World Trade Center all at one time. So, matter of fact, during the World Trade Center, there were so many firemen killed. It was 343 firemen killed, so some days they were having five or six, seven funerals a day. A few of the firemen's funerals we played, they would call us when they said that they didn't have, a, they didn't have enough men to do a funeral, and we played a few of the firemen's funerals too, just because they, they, just because there wasn't enough men to go around, you know. The NYPD pipe band didn't play Danny Boy, but at those funerals of the fallen, and particularly at the funerals of the many Irish that lost their lives on 9/11. Danny Boy became the secular lament that echoed through this city's grief. It just became kind of like the funeral hymn of the NYPD and the fire department and Port Authority of Police and, and funerals in general, you know. I mean, I'd be honest, I, can, I, I was at countless services and I mean, I've no, I couldn't tell you how many times I heard Danny Boy, you know. We've almost come full circle if I can put it that way. And really a lot of it is in the post 9-11 world where, you know, pipe bands are only around since the 1950s, but they are so equated with the St. Patrick's Day Parade and with Irish America. Um, and because of the ethnic associations within the fire department and the police department and the ceremonial use of those pipe bands on occasions like funerals, has reintroduced the old airs, the old Moore's melodies are back in. At the uh, 10th anniversary of the 9-11 memorial, the pipe band played The Minstrel Boy. Unless you know the air and can name it, it's so, it's so familiar people can't even put a name on it anymore, but it is Thomas Moore's Minstrel Boy. <clears throat> and it's the same thing with um, Danny Boy, if it's being associated, it's bubbled above the surface, let's put it that way, in a new way. It, it, again, coming back to what I said about it's beyond the Irish borders, there are some airs and melodies which become universal. And I think that Danny Boy will go in, but it may not always be with the lyrics, Danny Boy. I think for, for Irish people uh, in the diaspora, as well as at home in Ireland, that music and song have been an important vehicle for uh, both transmitting who we are and, and reminding ourselves who we are. And to this day, when you travel anywhere in the world, we're really known as, as musicians and singers and dancers and, and writers and creators of, of beauty. But I, I think it's fair to infer that a lot of our deepest concerns have been expressed artistically. Danny Boy fits into this centrally and perfectly. And I think it's because it's the perfect union, to use an American term, the perfect union of melody and text. But it comes back to the same thing, who uses it and for what purposes, and how well it's performed. All of those things are going to factor in. Does the artifact stand alone from any of that? Of course not. It only becomes meaningful when it, when it is performed. So that every time around the meaning will shift and it depends who's performing it, where, how, why, how well, to whom, under what circumstances. All the things that come into any organic performance, all those variables come to play and meaning will come out of, out of those and it's endless. Mm -hmm. 
and, and, and never-ending. When Summer's in the Meadow was written and presented by Mary Brophy. The producer was Neil Boyle. The programme was an IWR media production for RTE Lyric FM.